Randy, well, thank you for coming today. Today, I decided to talk about Hezekiah. And there's several reasons for this. We started with the framework of the history of the Bible. Last week, I wanted to talk about the pre-monarchic era, the time before the monarchy, the kings of Israel, um, which we focused on the book of Joshua and the battle and the battle against Jericho. Today, we're moving to the monarchic period, and the monarchic period is the time when Israel had its own kingdom. Um, and if you remember, monarchic period divides into two eras. First is the united monarchy, when Israel was governed by one king, and they were united. These are the time of the first kings of Israel, Saul, David, and Solomon. But after Solomon, the kingdom splits into half. It's going to become a northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom called <coughs> Judah. And today, particularly, we're going to be looking at King Hezekiah. And I know sometimes, you know, when I t- talk about the divided kingdom, there, p- people are a bit lost because they're not as familiar with it. Of course, they're, they know the story of Joshua. They know the stories of great David. But once we hit the divided monarchy and there's all these different kings, I mean, there are over 10 different kings' names, right? They're like, I don't remember who you know um, uh, these different, different kings are. Who, who are they? Where did they come in? Um, but we're going to pick Hezekiah today. Not only because he's one of the greatest kings during the divided monarchy, but also because, arguably, the reign of Hezekiah is the most well-attested king and like event in the entire Old Testament. And once I start talking about it today, you're gonna you're gonna see why. What do you mean by that? Like, att- like, like so, the most archaeological evidence for it? Not only archaeological. So let's say the Bible. The book of Hezekiah is mentioned not only in the book of 2 Kings, but also in 2 Chronicles. And 2 Chronicles and 2 Kings are different. There are details in 2 Chronicles that are archaeologically been affirmed that's not mentioned in 2 Kings. And also you find the mention of Hezekiah in the book of Isaiah. So in the Bible itself, we have three different books talking about Hezekiah. And then... We can talk about archaeology, where I'm going to show you some of the archaeological material that's going to correlate and co- correlate with the biblical account. <coughs> not only that, then we have multiple, not only one, multiple Assyrian inscriptions, inscriptions from foreign king talking about the event. There are very few events in the Bible that has that many different angles of um, evidences coming together to talk about a single king or event. I mean, they have David, this, this amount of evidence that are coming, uh, coming together, or witnesses, is way more than the time of David that a lot of us are going to be really familiar with. So I thought Hezekiah would be a good one. Um, case in point, right here, this is what you see. I know most people can't read Hebrew, and most people can't even read ancient Hebrew. But this is a seal that was just discovered within the past 10 years. Maybe less. It's quite recent. And what it says on here is Melech. You go down on the bottom, and the top it says Hezekiah. This is the seal of King Hezekiah, King of Judah. Just so a seal mentioning specifically a king, King Hezekiah from Jerusalem was discovered within the past maybe five years. So this itself is an amazing discovery that's pretty recent. So um, I'm really excited to kind of dive into this material with you. And what's, um, what are some interesting things that you see? This 
what that sign is? A what? It's a what? Sorry, I can't hear. Not house alive, it's called an unk, but yes, it's an Egyptian symbol of usually life, right? Um, so yes, you're correct, it's an Egyptian symbol. It's not Israeli, it's not Assyrian, that specific. It's an Egyptian symbol called the unk that usually represents life, or by its, yeah. It's a, and what you hear, you see here, is a winged sun. This is also another very Egyptian iconography or Egyptian symbol that we're seeing. So the interesting question is, why would an is, is Israeli king put some pagan symbolism? Well, let's think more about this as we go on. And it's not pagan. We're talking specifically Egyptian, right? So let's kind of dive into the text. First of all, in the English Bible, we have first and second kings, and they're divided. But in the original Hebrew, there were no divisions. So this division between first and second kings is artificial. So when we think about the book of Kings, we should think of this as one book. So let me just give you a brief outline of the entire book that spans many events. But we're going to start with the reign of Solomon. Um, the kings of Saul and like David is mainly in the, in the book of Samuel. But in the book of Kings, we start with the reign of Solomon, the son of David. And this is the first 11 chapters. Then we're going to have the story of the split of the kingdom by um, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Um, and that spans, um, and after this period, each, each kingdom of the north, Israel, south, Judah, will have their own rulers. And a lot of events are going to um, converge while you're reading the text. <coughs> but we're going to have Judah and Israel to Ahab. And then at the end of the book of First Kings, we go into the story of Elijah, the, the famous prophet, and Elisha, and how their prophetic ministry intersects with the reign of various kings. In Second Kings, we still have Elijah. We're going to start, start with Elijah and Elisha, mainly Elisha's ministry, and um, during the reigns of Ahaziah and Joram, and then we're going to have this sequence of events, well, basically starting really from chapter 9. But, um, because they're simultaneous, we have prophetic ministry, but the prophetic ministry is always in conjunction with the kings. And there are various kings, but what I want to know is 2 Kings really splits into two. The first half is about the time when there was still the northern kingdom of Israel. But in chapter 17, we see that um, the, Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel falls. They get sacked by the kingdom of Assyria, and northern kingdom of Israel is no more. The, end, the second half, really, of um, the book of 2 Kings is going to focus on the reigns of the remaining kings until Judah itself also gets sacked and destroyed, but this time by the Babylonians. So this is just a really brief, a brief um, outline, but I want to bring your attention that today we're going to be talking about this, Hezekiah. The, key, the first king of this section, this new section, when is, there, it's Judah alone and northern kingdom of Israel is gone. He's, a, he's almost a transitional figure because he's going to witness historically this event of the fall of Israel. And he's going to be the first king that ushers a new time for Judah that probably they're asking in light of the destruction of her neighbors, now that our northern neighbors are destroyed, by this powerful kingdom of the Assyrian, uh, the Assyrian Empire, 
what am I going to do different? It's a very critical time in history, if you think about it. Um, so both textually and historically, we know that Hezekiah is at a, very, at a moment in history that matters. That he needs to make key changes <coughs> in order to not end up like your northern neighbors. So, let's read. Um, I'm going to start reading, but, you know, I like reading scripture in the Bible study, so let's start with this. We're going to actually start before Hezekiah, and this is very important for me and intentional. I'm going to start with 2 Kings 17, with the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. Shalmaneser, or Nessar, king of Assyria, came up to attack Hosea, who had been Shalmaneser's vassal and had paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria discovered that Hosea was a traitor. For he had sent envoys to Sol, king of Egypt, and he no longer paid tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore, Shalmaneser seized him and put him into prison. So we read here about the, northern, the, the Assyrian king, Shalmaneser, coming and destroying the very last king of the northern kingdom of Israel. His name is Hosea. Um, or Hosea. There we go. Um, can someone read this slide? Or these verses. The king of Syria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, and laid siege to it for three years. In the ninth year of Hoshea, <coughs> the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Hala, in Gozan, on the Tabor River, and in the towns of the Medes. Okay, so you, probably some of you are questioning why in the world is God starting with a different king, when, we're, when he said he's going to talk about Hezekiah. Well, um, because I think this historical background and textual <coughs> background is very important to understanding the character of Hezekiah. First of all, like I said, this is kind of how the New Geographically we look. There's another kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah, and right now we read the destruction of Samaria. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. It actually had three different capitals during its history, but the most famous is Samaria, right there. Um, so, the site of Samaria is actually a real biblical and archaeological site that you can visit today. It's in the um, Western Bank, so, you know, it's harder to get into, you know, there aren't going to be too many tourists walking around. But I've been there, and it's actually a really fascinating site. Um, this is, it's on a tell. A tell is basically a little hill or a mound that gets built up. Because if someone lives here, if someone lives in this house gets destroyed, and someone else lives here, and after so many hundreds of thousands of years, a little hill, an artificial hill from different human settlements gets built up. And over here, these are structures of how they look. There's like an <coughs> outer wall that we see up here, and there's an upper platform with walls. This is kind of a more detailed um, diagram of this. And you see right here with a bunch of little squares, just things of these of different rooms, storerooms, hallways, and different things. And this is the palace that existed from the time of this divided monarchy. And unfortunately, a very, fortunately, a very famous New Testament figure builds something massive in, in Samaria. His name was Herod the Great. And some, some of you are like, okay, I know Herod. You know, what's so great about him? What, what's so great about Herod? What is he known for? Killing babies? Killing babies. Yeah, it's like, is that a great thing to do? Well, if you look at history, you find out that Herod the Great is called the Great, not because he was a great guy, you know. Um, he wasn't like that friendly guy, you know, giving fist pumps to his neighbor. No, that wasn't Herod. He was known the Great because of his building activities. He was a phenomenal builder. 
I mean, he, he had this almost theme of overcoming natural nature in order to show um, the splendor of what humans can do and build. He would build mountains where mountains didn't exist. He would put pools in place where there's no rain. I mean, the guy's an amazing builder. And when he built things, you know, what's the first thing you do when you build over somewhere? You bulldoze the place, right? You flatten it out. Um, that's basically what Herod did. So because of Herod's very aggressive building that he did in Samaria, almost everything from the time of this Iron Age or the time from the Old Testament period has been destroyed. There is very little archaeological evidence that we are left with to analyze. One of them is this, one of the palace walls. You can see it's pretty high. It's not those Jericho walls that we talked about last week. And you can see how nicely these are cut. I remember um, there's a question about, you know, did they have like cut stones, nicer stones, which we called ashelars? This is an example of ashelar masonry. These are stones that are cut into size, fit perfectly, and it's expensive, it's beautiful, and it's strong. So it's, a, it's material fit for a palace, which we see this is probably how the palace would have looked like during this period. Um, what, what kind of palace would have been there at the time of the Old Testament then, and by the monarchy that we read. <clears throat> also, um, we just read about the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel and Samaria's capital. We actually have archaeological evidence and actually other texts from Assyria and the kings commemorating this event. So it's not only the Bible that talks about this. This is the really famous um, great summary inscription. I besieged and reconquered Samaria, Samaria basically Samaria. I gathered 27,290 people who lived there. I gathered 50 chariots from them. I taught the rest of the deportees their skills. I sent my eunuch over them, and I imposed upon them the same tribute as the previous king. So here we already have a clear example of the Assyrian king boasting his destruction over Samaria. Also, he says, I repopulated Samaria more than before. I brought into it people from countries conquered by my hand. I appointed my eunuchs as governors over them, and I counted them as Assyrians. So there are various things that are just mentioned in these Assyrian texts, not the biblical text, um, that actually correlates with what the Bible says. One thing is, this Syria destroyed Samaria. Also, it talks about the deportation of the Israelites, meaning the Assyrians came, conquered Samaria, and took its inhabitants out of the land to his, his land. Also, it says that I repopulated the place. So, not only didn't he empty the land with its original inhabitants, it says I placed people there to replace them. And if you read a few more verses later, um, the Bible also talks about how the, the Assyrian king repopulated in the city of Samaria. So, in multiple ways, the biblical accounts in this um, historical document correlate. There's one thing that I want to talk and this is the myth of the lost tribes of Israel. How many people have heard about this concept, the lost tribes of Israel? Okay, and there are actually even different religious groups that claim that there are still the lost tribes of Israel. And here is a map of modern-day different um, communities claiming that they're part of the lost tribe of Israel, descendants of them. If you've noticed, from the land of Israel, somehow all the way they went to Japan. And suppose, supposedly the people of Japanese, Japan, <laughs> me Japanese people, were the God's chosen people, according to some groups. 
And, you know, you think this is ridiculous, but my older brother, who has gone to seminary and is a pastor in Japan, actually sent me a video of this fantastic thing he learned, that how Japanese people were actually Jewish, that the Jewish people, these Israelites, came all the way to the land of Japan, and somehow even a writing system is based on Hebrew. I had, I, I had a lot of problems with that interpretation, <laughs> but there, there are actually different ways that people try to explain this historically, too. Yeah. And even in America, we have these, um, what, African Hebrew Israelite, this group that claims that, too. Yes? It's like there was a bunch of them coming to America, and the Great Holocaust, our president sent them away to be slaughtered. <clears throat> Did you hear about that? You mean like... So, so Jews who were fleeing Europe... Yeah. Yeah, to try and gain oh, refuge okay, in the okay, United okay. States were turned okay, away. Ethiopians, everywhere. You would think that they would just be like, you know, like Israel. No, they were everywhere. So, yes. there's, there's, so the, there's a book called The Voyage of the Damned that, yeah. that talks about that story. Yes, but, yeah, so a little different. you're talking more modern Jewish um, repopulation, but this is not modern thing. Everyone who claimed these to population based their claim <coughs> on the book that you're just reading right now, the Bible, mm -hmm. and this historical event of the people. Well, the Hebrew Israelites think that they first went to Africa, and that they're in Africa, and then if you're so, a descendant of slaves... Yes. So you see that right here, too. Yeah. The, the I've had lots of Yes. So, there are, there are different ways, different groups that claim this, including my people, Japanese people, as well as, <laughs> well as Americans. So, um, the question is, why the heck do people talk about the lost tribes of Israel? So let's look at the Bible, and let's, let's look at archaeology to kind of answer this question. One thing is, we read in the Bible, in the ninth year of Hosea, king of Assyria, captured some Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. Uh -huh. He settled them in Hala and Gozan, in Habor River, and in the towns of Medes. So, first of all, the Bible itself talks it's a, they're not lost, according to the Bible. The Bible knew where the people went. Mm -hmm. And if you remember the Assyrian records that we talked about, the Assyrians themselves said, I deported them to Assyria. Mm -hmm. So, in both accounts, we have this. And the question is, where, is, where are these places? Hala and Golza and Havar River and towns of Medes? We actually know these places. These are actual places that exist. We have Gozan here, Hala right there. This is the land of Media. It's more of like this geopolitical entity instead of a town. But, so, towns of media. Um, so, roughly, and this is um, the river that they're talking about. So, there's the Euphrates, and there's going to be one of, like, these broken, broken, um, the sideway channel is uh, the Haber River. So, we read from the biblical text, and we can correlate it with known locations from the kingdom of Assyria. Um... Assyrian records confirm that the Israelites were taken to the same location that the Bible identifies. Um, Hala, the Assyrian province of Hoala, and Gozan is a place called Guzuna, or modern Tel Halaf. Um, and these are all places that are known from the archaeology. Hala, so let's go to the first one. Hala is identified as the province of Hoala, um, where Sargon was building his capital, Durshadukim, or more famously, as Korsava. Um, this picture that I show you is very intentional. If you want to know how one of this palace where um, Sargon, the king of Assyria, was building in this area, and probably the Israelites put, pay, um, played a role in building, it's in Chicago at the Oriental Institute. 
Actually, this is one of the very few places you can still see it because ISIS went in and destroyed the original one. So, if you're seriously curious as to where the Israelites might have gone and had a hand in building this palace, it's exactly at this location in Chicago. You don't have to fly to a foreign country. If you fly to a foreign country, you won't find it. This is it. Um, and the new city was built by labor force of enemy captivities. And uh, we know this because the Assyrians themselves wrote this down, that they used captives that they brought from foreign countries as workforce. This is an inscription. Concerning what the king, my lord, wrote to me, provide the Sumerians, as many are in your hands, with work for du Sharukim, where thereafter I sent word to sheikhs, saying, gather all the carpenters and potters, let them come and direct deportees who are in du <coughs> So, this inscription is a direct attestation where they were literally asking, specifying that they want people from Samaria, meaning the Israelites, to work on this palace. So that's a very conclusive evidence of we know where the Israelites went. They weren't really lost. Also, what kind of stuff did these Israelites do other than, let's say, slave or hard work? We also have multiple other documents that talks about the Israelites serving in various capacities in the land in Assyria. Um, one of the inscriptions we read earlier said, I counted them as Assyrians, and we know that the Israelites go and immerse themselves into the culture and society of the Assyrians in various ways. Um, we know that at least one-fifth of Sargon's army was West Semitic, meaning people from that general area. Not only Israelites, but we can talk about northern Syrians and, you know, Edomites and whatnot, those, that general vicinity. Um, but one-fifth is a really substantial number. We also know that entire Nebuchadnezzar's Pilister, he's another Assyrian king's, um, army was comprised solely of deportees, professional soldiers from various these 11 site, um, sites, and Sargon added an entire unit of Sumerian charioteers to his army. So apparently the, the people from Israel were known as capable fighting men, good with the horse. Um, and one question is like, well, how can you tell, you know, who's who, who's Israelite? One of the key ways that we can tell is what's called a Yahwistic theophoric. Yahweh is Israel's God that we read in the Old Testament. Theophoric basically means a name based on a deity. So, um, and usually these are key indicators of someone's ethnicity, at least in the ancient time, because no one else really worshipped Yahweh other than the Israelites. Um, and other countries that worshipped other deities would put their other deities' name in their name. For example, some, some guy's name would be something Baal, like Ishbaal. Um, um, and you're going to read other types of names. But this is a very common practice. Um, for example, let's say even now, if someone says, my name is Mohammed, you know, sometimes you know, your natural inclination is going to be, well, I don't know if they're actually from the United States. I don't know if their family has a Christian background. There's some names that are more problem predominantly, something associated with a different religion or um, people from different countries. For example, if I say my name is Kazuyuki Hayashi, you're going to be like, he ain't from America. <laughs> so, um, this is one way. Um, Yahweh Yorfork is a more specific way that they do, but you find all these Yahweh, like Isaiah, Yah means Yahweh, you know, it means Yahweh saves. Um, and we have different names like Nadi Yao from Nineveh who served in these really elite capacities within the land of Assyria. 
all these are yao, 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 yaoistic theophoric names, which indicate that they're Israelites. And some literate people, more educated, elite people from those deported from Israel, they didn't get into, they weren't sent to make pottery. They were used for their skills. They were asked to go and serve in more royal capacities that, that they could utilize in their skills. Um, and a deported from Samaria named um, Sama was elevated the Syrian court as a role of commander of teams of horsemen. Um, so these are enough examples. But the question now is, now that we know that the Israelites went, we know where they went. They're not lost. There's a specific place mentioned in the Bible. We know from the Assyrian sources where that the Assyrians took them to Assyria. And we also have multiple names and specific documents mentioning people of Samaria serving in these exact locations that the Bible talks about. So the question is, whatever happened to them? Well... One thing that we can tell is by looking at these names of the Israelites, what happened was acculturation. People were living in a new land, worshiping new deities, with new and learning new languages, and sooner or later, that culture dies out. I think studies actually show this shows that within three generations, even in modern times, that let's say I'm from Japan, in three generations, by the time of my grandkids, they're most likely not going to speak Japanese. And it's a very, you have to be very, very intentional to, in order to keep your ethnicity and culture alive. Right. Yes. So that's when everything changed. Those will be changed, yes. But at this point, they're not really Israelites anymore. They become Assyrians. Right? And we know, as Americans, that if, you know, I come to America and I'll be like, you know, what, you know, what ethnicity are you? They're going to be like, I'm German. I'm like, do you speak German? No. <laughs> have you been to Germany? <laughs> no. <laughs> so Assyrians, they're Israel Assyrians are different. Different Assyrians are this people group in the north, like in modern-day Syria, Turkey. But they're not Jews. No, no, no. That and one one thing we know is that these inscriptions talks about all these different deities that they worshipped. Um, so <coughs> let me explain this. This is going to be a good example, a great question. Assyrianization happened. People lost their Israelite identity, and you can tell because in multiple documents it's going to talk about like. In the ancient time, it was very common to say, my name is Ayn Kaz, son of Takakazu, grandson of, you know, so, you know, something, something. This was a very common way to do, uh, to introduce yourself. <coughs> we have these contracts that also talked about multi-generational things. And well, what happened is a father will have a theophoric name, and a son or grandson will have, believe it or not, an Assyrian deity's name mixed in their name, uh, deity's name mixed in their name. So, we have Ahaziyahu, Yahu, you know, um, Yahweh is probably strong, the grass. Hawamusu, a witness of um, Isar, Namzi, so this one is probably based on Ishtar, a uh, war goddess. So, we already see the sun doesn't have a Yahweh <coughs> anymore. And a more specific one is right here. Grandfather is Shameyahu, probably means Yahweh hears me. Ahaziyahu, Amanase, these are all popular Hebrew names. But then the son or grandson, Adad Milki Uresu. That means Adad, the storm god of the Assyrians, is king. <coughs> so we start seeing tangible cases where. Maybe the first generation or second generation was able to keep their Israelite ethnicity and identity. 
but through multiple generations of living in Assyria, intermarrying, immersing themselves in the culture, and we know that they did. They didn't just become a group by themselves. They were serving in high courts in the Assyrian policy. There were actually some even served as priests in the Assyrian temples. Ooh, they weren't worshiping Yahweh. Um, we see that the Israelites were opportunistic to an extent. They had to do what they do to survive. They immerse themselves in the culture, and what happens is in a few generations, they truly become lost in a sense that they're gone. That they become Assyrians and no longer Israelites. So one thing that I think we learned from this is there's really no such thing as a lost Israelite because we know where they went and we know what happened to them. Um, so let's read the <coughs> next portion. Can someone read these verses for me? Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses. Next. And the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. From watchtower to fortified city, he defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and his territory. Thank you. Okay. Um, let's see, I can read this one. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. So Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent this message to the king of Assyria at Lachish. I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. I will pay whatever you demand of me. The king of Assyria extracted from Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Can someone read this? So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace. At this time, Hezekiah, king of Judah, stripped off the gold with which he had covered the doors and doorposts of the temple of the Lord and gave it to the king of Assyria. Thank you. Uh, let's go. So the reason, the question is, why did Kaz make me start with learning about this bad king, Hosea? And why did he start with the sacking and destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel? And I think it's because the biblical author is trying to build a contrast between Hosea and the king of Hezekiah. And help us expect things that might be the case. So let me explain. Um, like I said, Hezekiah comes into power at a very critical juncture in history. We know that Hosea was the last king of the northern kingdom of Israel. He gets destroyed because of his disobedience to Yahweh, obviously. Um, and then Hezekiah comes, and the key question for all of us is saying, how is Hezekiah going to do? We know that he's a good king. The, the chapter um, 18 opens up and saying, Hezekiah is a good king. But that's not good enough. We need to know more, right? So let's compare it. Hosea quits paying tribute to Assyria. That's what we read. And... Why would Hosea do that? I mean, another thing that you read in the Assyrian records is that Hosea was a puppet king of Assyria. It's actually who made Assyria Hosea king was the Assyrian king. And we know that from Assyrian written text. The Bible tries to fudge it a little bit. It's a little bit more ambiguous. But we have extra biblical inscriptions that really make that crystal clear. But Hosea quits paying tribute to Assyria. And why? It's because it talks about Hosea forming an alliance with Egypt. So, what happened was betrayal. He says, Egypt is a powerful nation, is my neighbor, let's work together and 
take down this northern kingdom of Assyria, this mighty empire called Assyria together. So he quits paying his taxes and dues. This leads the Assyrian king to attack Israel, and we know that the Assyrian king takes away Israel and everything with it, the, the people, the money and stuff. So, now we're reading Hezekiah. Interestingly, the biblical text starts with Hezekiah, of course it says Hezekiah was a good king, but then it says Hezekiah rebels against Assyria. That's what we're told. Hezekiah rebels against Assyria, and we're like, well, how did Hezekiah rebel? Was it by not paying tribute to Assyria? Like, what did he do? The interesting thing is the verses that follow talks about how Hezekiah attacked Gaza and different Philistine sites. Some biblical interpreter understands this as this idea of Hezekiah being blessed by God, and one way that Israelite kings were blessed was having victory over foreign nations. I actually don't think so. I think that the following statement of how Hezekiah attacked different Philistine sites is a further description of how he rebels against Assyria. The reason being, we know at this time that it wasn't only Israel that was a puppet state of Assyria. No, Philistia, the Philistines, in fact, were vassals in, and they were on Assyria's sides. So if you beat up, you know, your friend's younger brother or some guy's younger brother, who's going to come and beat you up? Yeah, the whole family's going to come, right? They're going to be like, what'd you do? You know, you're not doing that. So that's what happens. Hezekiah attacks the vassal Littleson states um, or allies, the allies of Assyria, which gets him in trouble. We also talks about, um, in, in contrast to Hosea, who forms an alliance with Egypt, it talks about Hezekiah trust in Yahweh. But another interesting thing is that's a theological truth. I think there's also a geopolitical thing happening here, too. In the biblical text, it's not as clear, but in later parts, we're going to be reading words that were spoken by Assyrian um, messengers, and they're, um, they're actually telling Hezekiah, of, or questioning Hezekiah, why the heck are you making alliances with Egypt? So it appears that from the biblical text itself, we can infer that of course Hezekiah trusts in Yahweh, and this is one of the main themes of this in chapter. But I also think there must have been a geopolitical thing going on where Hezekiah somehow aligns himself with the land of Egypt, just like Hosea does. So we're seeing multiple connections here. Then what happens, obviously, when you form alliances with somewhere or somewhere else, Assyria is not going to stand idle. They're going to come and attack. We read about Assyrian king's attack, and we also read about how the Assyrian king takes away booty, or, you know, um, they, they, they sack items and take precious materials. And in here we read clearly that Hezekiah had to offer up gold and silver from the temple of Yahweh, which is really unthinkable. We, you know, we, we're introduced like Hezekiah. He was a good king. You know what? When the Assyrians attacked, the first thing he did was give away, you know, gold and silver from the temple. Huh. You think about what's exactly happening here. You know, what is so good about this king? Well, don't worry. There are more verses to read. We have lots of verses to read in this, in this lesson. But let's kind of keep reading and see, see what happens. Um, Oh, sorry, before that. The text right now also spoke about <clears throat> Lachish. I know geography is not everyone's strong student. It's not the main details we remember when we read biblical narratives. But one thing that we just read is that the Assyrian king sent envoys from Lachish to Hezekiah. 
Lachish is also a biblical site that is identified and has been excavated thoroughly. It's one of the most well-excavated sites in the land of Israel. So here's a geographical map right around the center of Israel, a little bit south of Jerusalem. We find Lachish right here, and this is an aerial photo of the tell. Like I said, a tell is an artificial mound created by so many thousands and hundreds, hundreds of thousands of years of occupation. And right now, I know it just looks like a little hill, but if you look at here, there are little archaeological features that we find where we start to see. Let me show you a better picture that might help things out. This is kind of a line drawing of where things are. This is a portrait of Latisse. There's a palace in the middle that was excavated, the one that, sorry, that we just saw right here, we saw there. That's the palace, and that's going to be the gate that we see right here. We have a siege ramp, meaning it was a defense mechanism that they built. It's kind of really steep hill to make it harder to attack there, surrounded by a wall. And this is kind of a modern reconstruction of um, Lakish, how it might have looked. You can see that there is a walkway here, the gate that you see right here, obviously this beautiful, strong, large palace, and we, here we see a siege ramp, a hill going up to Lakish, and there are two walls, defensive walls, in order to fortify this site. And what is the capital of Texas for uh, Texas? What's the largest city in Texas? Houston. Houston. So, we will find out that we read often about Jerusalem. Jerusalem actually wasn't the largest city in Israel. We're going to find out, at least in the, in the southern sites of Judah, Lachish is our Houston. Lachish is humongous. Jerusalem, of course, is a political site. But Lachish is one of the jewels of the land of Israel. Um, and one thing that we find out, that this battle that the Assyrians fought against the site of Lachish was such a big victory for the, for the Assyrians that they decided to commemorate this event in their palace, located in the site of Nineveh, one of the capitals of the Assyrian kingdom. Um, and this is kind of a map of um, Sennacherib's palace. There's a river right there, huge fortified walls. Um, you can see there's a palace here, a temple here. This is going to be the temple. Right here, there's a different palace. And here is Sennacherib's palace that you see. Um, if we, this is kind of an artistic reconstruction or rendition of how it might have looked. You can see that's the large temple, and here we have this humongous palace with multiple um, rooms and courtyards. And if you enter that building, this would have been something that you would have seen. And I think this is pretty dang close to what it was. We have fearsome <coughs> creatures guarding the entrance. I mean, these are as tall as this ceiling right here. Humongous. And it was beautifully painted with these different um, protective deities all over the place. Um, and it commemorates some of the strength of the Assyrian king hunting lions. And one of the rooms was decorated with these reliefs. And this is currently displayed in the British Museum in, um, obviously, England. And I know this is a little bit hard for you to see. This is kind of if we make it flat. And let me talk about different features. This itself is that scene commemorating the attack of Lachish by the Assyrian king. And here we have, um, I'm going to give you a zoom in for a bit. This looks like something like this. I know it's still a little bit hard, 
But here you can see moles of Lachish, those outer walls that you saw. You can talk about the, I talked about that hill, right? There is a rampart leading up to it. So you can see the Assyrian soldiers being in the angle, attacking these, these fortified walls. And these Israelites, or the inhabitants of Lachish, are throwing flames down on these armies. You can see that then one of the guys on this tower is shooting down the Assyrians. And the Assyrians have much power, and you can see that there's death, people falling from, from these constructions. But this is one of the scenes commemorating this event of the Battle of the Lachish. And one thing that we're going to learn about that uh, Assyrians is that they were masters of war and masters of terror. Um, one thing is, this is also a, a zoom of one of these soldiers in Lachish. And what is he using? Slingshot. A slingshot. You don't think of a slingshot when going to war, right? You know, <laughs> if, you're, if your family's going to join the army, you're not going to give them a slingshot. Hey, come on, go, go take this. Um, but in the ancient times, slingshots weren't toys. They were deadly weapons. And you can see that even the Assyrians used it. This right here is in the Israel Museum, the main museum in the land of Israel. And they actually have these sling stones from the site of Lachish, correlating the scene that was drawn or um, inscribed in the palace of Nineveh itself. And you can see they're pretty big. They're about the size of, the size of a baseball. You know, you, the thing is, like, if you know a good thrower, if they threw one of those and it hit you in the head, you're, you know you're not going to live. <laughs> you know? Um, and using these um, slings made you even throw them faster. So you can see how powerful a weapon that could have been. Another one, we see um, the Lachish relief having these archers from the excavations of Lachish. These are all from Lachish directly, not from any other site, from Lachish. And we know that these were um, Assyrian-style um, arrowheads. So we have all these um, not only textual evidence from the Bible and um, from Assyria. We also have this beautiful friezes on the wall that commemorates this event, remembers this event. We know the archaeological evidence all talk about this single um, event in the Bible's history. <coughs> so, and one thing that we're going to learn is, um... Can I ask you a really stupid question? No problem, yeah, go ahead. There are stupid questions. Okay. Uh, Assyrians and Babylonians, same people? Different. Different people. Yes. But um, close to the same time period. This is a very difficult thing for me to answer. So, All right. they're contemporary, basically. They're contemporary. Okay. Um, and even when you say Assyrians, there's old and new. We're talking the new Assyrians right now. But yes, it's roughly about the time of, like, you know, the 8th century. And the Babylonians are more in the south. And they keep coming of different empires come into power, lose power. The old Babylonians, like we're thinking like Hammurabi or something, like the 1800s, they were main power, and they're earlier, obviously, the new Assyrians. The new Babylonians are going to come after them. Yes. So yes, different empires grow. Isn't Babylon uh, Iraq now? It is. Yeah, I think it's Iraq. That's yeah. Could we say uh, similar region, but also because they're in a similar region, very much rival powers? Yes. Like, yes. Uh, like the Yankees and the Mets, you know? Yeah. Yeah, sim similar area, but that produces a very fierce rivalry. Yes. Mm -hmm. So one more thing I want to talk about is the Assyrians, they were known for their terror, or warfare of terror, almost. Mm -hmm. um, 
if you think ISIS is terrible, these people are really nasty. <laughs> Oh, really? And trust me, like, and why would ISIS do these terrible acts and show it on the internet? Right. It's the notion of an ideology of terror. Mm -hmm. Maybe for us Americans, we're like, oh, they're far away, we don't worry. Oh. If you were there, and you knew that they were hunting down Christians, and beheading Christians, would you right. be afraid? Yeah. This yeah. is the exact same thing that, the, the, that they were doing. The Syrians were master... Um, People was in warfare and terror. You can see here, this is the scenes from this relief, beheadings that took place. Mm -hmm. These people, they're new, they're naked, and they're being smashed to the ground. Mm -hmm. And here you can see that uh, crucifixion, it starts here. Mm -hmm. Really, literally. Yeah. The Assyrians started, the Persians perfected, and then the Romans adopted. So, there are all these reliefs, and this is on a palace. This is kind of like in your bedroom. Um, you know, these, these are things that they were very proud of. They were known for their um, fierce, fearsome strength. They knew, and they, they actually have stories of foreign kings being warned not to rebel. And if they rebel, one of the torture methods that they had was it was the king versus a bear, a literal bear. You know, Baylor bears, you know, we lose sometime. Do you think these bears lost ever to a king? No. I mean, they would never lose. So, um, it's like sicken bears, but not in the right way. But, so, we're going to find out that if there is this humongous power that will wreak havoc and these terror, would most kings, and think about Israel. Israel's a tiny country. This is split in half. Israel, as a full country, fits in great, like Lake Michigan. And this is half of it right now. Would tiny Judah should be afraid of the Assyrian kingdom? Yes, indeed. Yes. And these are all different reasons why they should have been afraid. But let's read how Hezekiah reacts. I'm going to start. The king of Syria sent his supreme commander, his chief officer, and his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. Can someone read these verses? The field commander said to them, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You, you say you have the counsel and the might for war, but you speak only into words. On whom are you pretending that you that you rebelled against me? Thank you. Can someone read these verses? Look, I know you are depending on Egypt, that splinter breed of a staff, which pierce, pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. But if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Furthermore, I have, have I come to attack and restore this place without word from the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you from my hand. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says, Bless you. The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat 
grape from their own vine and fig tree, and drink water from their own cistern. This verse? Until I come and take you to a land of pleasure, um, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of all trees and honey. Choose life and nothing. Mm -hmm. Oh, this verse. So who's talking here? This is the Syrian king? This is the Syrian envoy, yes. Okay. So the, yeah, this messenger from Assyria is saying to do not listen to Do not listen to Hezekiah, for he is misleading you when he says, the Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of, yeah, right, Hena and Evah? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save his land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Tell me this verse. Now Sennacherib received a report that Terhaka, Terhaka. that the yeah. king of Cush was marching out to fight against him. So he again sent messengers to Hezekiah with his word. Stay to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Sorry, stay to. Do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Surely, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to the countries, destroying them completely. And will you be delivered? Did the gods of the nations that were destroyed by my predecessors deliver them? The gods of Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden who were in Tel Asaph. Where is the king of Hamath, or the king of Arpad? Where are the kings of Leir, Sepharvain, Hena, and Eva? Hezekiah received a letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went to the temple and to... And of the Lord, and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, Lord, the God of Israel, throne between the cherubim. You alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Um, and so I'm going to read this. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord our God, deliver us from this hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. This, there we go. That night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. Last verse. <laughs> One day, while he was worshiping in the temple of his god in Israel, his sons, Adramalu, <laughs> killed him with the sword, and they escaped to the land of Ararat. And his sons succeeded him as king. I had few expressions intentionally underlined. Did anyone catch what they were? It appeared many times. What? Say that again. There, was a, there were expressions that I underlined, oh. and it appeared over and over on this line. Does anyone remember what those were? <laughs> Go back and <laughs> So it's just a practice. You know, sometimes when the biblical text repeats something over and over, oh, yeah. it's a main motif yeah, so, that it's right. going at. Mm -hmm. That is trust. And we're going to see 
Um, Can so I add something? Like we just finished talking about studying like apocalyptic literature, and so I don't know if this is before or after that, but it just seems like you've got this big powerhouse and power, and you would be afraid of, course. of these people, but then it's like building your faith and your trust that when you peel back the natural world, you start looking back into that spiritual world that God is still in control. And so Hezekiah had um, the ability to, to take this problem, his letter or whatever he got, and to yeah. lay it before the Lord. And the Lord was able to reveal to him um, something that maybe his natural eye couldn't see. Because mm -hmm. repeatedly in this letter, uh, the Assyrians told them, do not trust, I don't know if that's what you're underlying, but Good. do not trust your Lord. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Don't trust this guy, he's going to get you killed, he's going to get you yeah. beat up. Uh, but Hezekiah uh, went to the Lord anyway. And he was exactly. like, look, and then the Lord gave him victory. Um, yeah. And so these are the things, I guess, when we talked about prophecy before, that God would point you back to the past. Uh, to help you in the current situation uh, so that you'll have what you need to, to face your future. So as we were reading it, it kind of did make me think about how the uh, Israelites went through these, not just years, but centuries mm -hmm. of defeat. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Centuries of yeah. defeat. And they, you know, <laughs> when God didn't show up <laughs> and, um, and show them victory. So... Yeah. I think that would always try to connect what we're learning. No, that's a really good connection. No, there are a lot of theological, like you know, mm -hmm. underpinnings between these narratives, right? Like, mm -hmm. like you said, there's uh, some country or power that's over you that you feel like you have no power over them. That you, I mean, how can Hezekiah seriously possibly do anything right at this moment? And the stuff that these Assyrian envoys that he's saying, it makes complete logical sense. You know, if you think logic, like, of course he's right. You know, what can little Judah do to beat Assyria who's killed, destroyed multiple nations? You know, not one, not two, multiple nations. But anyways, yeah, let's read this. So, this is another thing. These are called um, Sennacherib's prisons. And one's at the Oriental Institute in Chicago. Another one is in Israel Museum and obviously Jerusalem. Another one is at the Great British Museum in London. But these are one of the most exciting finds in biblical history, or in our time, because it basically retells the story that we just read from a different angle of the Assyrians. Mm -hmm. As to Hezekiah the Jew, he did not submit to my yoke. I laid siege to 46 of the strong cities, walled forts into the countless small villages in their vicinity and conquered them. I drove out of them 200,150 people, young and old, male and females, horses, mules, donkeys, camels, big and small cattle beyond, beyond counting, and considered them booty. Himself I made a prisoner in Jerusalem, his royal residence, like a bird in a cage. His towns which I had plundered I took away from his country and gave them over to Mitinti, king of Ashdod, Pani, king of Ekron, and Shilabel, king of Gaza. Thus I reduce this country, but I still increase the tribute and the Kabtu presence due to me as his overlord, which I imposed later upon him beyond the former tribute to be delivered annually. Um, Fid sent to me um, later to Nineveh, my lordly city, together with 30 talents of gold, 800 talents of silver, precious stones, and timony, large cuts, red stone, blah, 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 all these nice things that he took yeah. over. 
But doesn't it sound very similar to what we just read in the biblical narrative? It talks about how Hezekiah rebelled, how he attacked, and the thing, did you remember what, the expression of how he shut Hezekiah in Jerusalem? What did he say? Bird in a cage. Bird in a cage. He never says that I destroyed and took over Jerusalem. Right. Because he couldn't. He never conquered Jerusalem, and that's one of the things that we read in the biblical narrative. In the biblical narrative, what happened that saved the Israelites? Or the, took it up and died overnight. According to this one, yeah, um, the, the biblical narrative talks about the angel of the Lord coming yeah. and putting to death, you know, the Assyrian army, and then the Assyrian army supposedly leaves. So, um, let's kind of compare the Assyrian prison and the biblical account. The Syrian says, I laid siege to something, I drove out of them, I plundered, I reduced this country, I stole the tribute, I imposed. Do you ever remember mention of a deity in that? <laughs> Actually, no. A deity is not mentioned one time in that account. But in the Bible, when it's retelling the same story, but from, you know, um, the angle of the Israelites, he says, you will are a God over all the kingdoms. That's a confession that they didn't um, the Bible makes, now Lord God, deliver us from his hand, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. So it has two fundamental different, fundamentally different purposes. The Snacker prism um, commemorates this historical event so that it can be remembered for generations that the Assyrian king destroyed, um, had this great victory. In contrast to the biblical camp, what is it concerned of? Who is Yahweh? Who is the true God? We can see that. We also see a lot of the similarities. Hezekiah did not submit to my yoke, it says. Hezekiah rebelled, is what the Bible says. Assyrian prism actually says, deported 200,000 people from the land of Israel. Um, interesting, the Bible talks about putting 185,000 people to death. So there's something um, interesting there that's happening. Hezekiah was a prisoner in Jerusalem, like a bird in a cage, inaccurate accurate through, is what the Bible says. Um, Assyrian prism says he took 800 pounds of silver, 30 pounds of gold. The Bible actually talks about... Um, Hezekiah giving 300 talents of silver, but 30 talents of gold, which is exactly what's written here, too. So, there's a surprisingly great um, overlap that we're having. But what I'm really concerned is, is, you know, what is the Bible really trying to te teach us and tell us today? I want to say, the title used by the Assyrian envoy about the Assyrian king is the great king, the king of Assyria. And he acts, in, and then, if you really pay attention... He says, it, it almost acts like the king is a divine spokesperson. He says, the Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. That's what Sennacherib is supposedly saying. He says, I heard from Yahweh. But not only that, he says, I will take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey. How does that kind of sound like? <laughs> like the promised land, right? It seems like this Sennacherib is almost taking a divine figure character and talking to the Israelites. And then, repeatedly, this was repeated like three, four times in this narrative. Where are the gods of Hamath? You know, Arpad, Sephardar, Baim, Hannah, Eva. Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries have been able to save this land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from, from you know, my hand? It seems like he's saying, I am more powerful than your God, God at yeah. this moment. And I'm more powerful than any one of these kingdoms and their gods. But you know what? He was like, he gave you two hands. Like this king showed you both sides of himself. He didn't just say, I'm going to kill you, kill you, kill you. He also baited them with, 
I'm going to give you this. You know, mm-hmm. he wasn't just doom and gloom in this in this text per se. So he did offer them like the carrot on the stick, like if you follow me, you yeah. should get these things. But if Israel would have listened, mm-hmm. it's basically accepting whatever this Sennacherib said, right? Mm-hmm. It's saying, yes, you know what you say is true. Let's tr- trust in you mm-hmm. instead of trusting who? Yahweh. Yahweh. Do you remember one of the first things that opened up in chapter 18, the story of Hezekiah? It says, Hezekiah's a good, God, a good king. Mm-hmm. Why is he a good king? He trusted in Yahweh. And this entire story is about how Hezekiah trusted in Yahweh. And um, there's one thing that I also want to talk about. Sennacherib, he talked about how he destroyed many countries. This is Sennacherib, that bowl that I talked about in Nineveh. Here is Sennacherib, actually, at the battle scene. Can you see what he's seating on? That throne, the decoration, is really quite ornate, but you see different people, stick figures, standing up supporting him. This is a visual representation of all the kingdoms that Sennacherib attacked and conquered. These are all his vassals. Literally, what this is showing is that all the kingdoms that he destroyed, all the people groups, are supporting the great king, literally, in this way. This visual way is a representation. And also, I want to talk about this inscriptions, Assyrian inscription, when they talk about kings, this is how they say Adam Nirari, a different king, great king, mighty king, king of the universe, king of Assyria, son of Sanashi Adas, mighty king, king of the universe, king of Assyria, son of Shalmaneser, king of the four quarters. I mean, four quarters of the earth. Yes. And this one is basically said multiple times for a different king. But this title is a title that talks about the Syrian king as a king of over all the world. What? This is an interesting contrast that we see. Hezekiah says, Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you are Lord and God over all the kingdoms of the earth. So there's a stark contrast. Instead of the Syrians who themselves claim to be kings of the, all of the world, visually represents that with that throne. What Hezekiah says is, Yahweh, you sit on your own throne, on the cherubim. This is a this is a depiction. This is an archaeological artifact from the land of Israel, from a cycle Megiddo, where you can see a king is seated on a cherubim throne. Also, we see this from the the north, and about the same time of what we're talking about, a cherubim throne which supports a king. So Hezekiah is. In, words right now. Lord God of Israel enthroned between the cherubim is saying Yahweh, you're not just sitting on a chair. You are the king and ruler, sovereign ruler that rules all. And not only rule over all the kingdoms of the earth. This is a direct attack on the vision of king of Assyria that is very prominent in, in these um, texts. Finally, he says give ear, your Lord and hear, open your eyes Lord and see, listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. This is very important because God is described as listen. Can, to listen, you need to be alive. To see, you need to be alive. Oh, and he says, You are the living God. And what Hezekiah says is, They have thrown their gods, these foreign gods, to fire and destroy them, but they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. So, in conclusion, I think. The story of Hezekiah is talking about how Hezekiah provides a paradigm for trusting in Yahweh. Assyrians were powerful, 
their master of warfare. Terrible people of terror. And it seems like the text is saying, unlike Hosea, who trusts in Egypt, right? Hezekiah trusts in Yahweh. Yahweh is the sole sovereign king over the world, is also what it's saying. Not the Assyrian king that I just showed is known for kings of all over the world. And Yahweh is the true living God, unlike any other nation's king or deity. And what did Yahweh do to prove himself? He was faithful, he heard, he saw, and he brought destruction upon the Assyrians, which would have been absolutely impossible for the Hezekiah and the people of Israel, or Judah, to do at that period. So hopefully we learn a lesson from the story of Hezekiah. Sorry, I know I went a little bit over. Hang up for some time. Hello, my name is Lorenz, and I am a choir singer here at One Fellowship Church in Waco, Texas. Thank you for listening. You can learn more about our congregation online at onefellowshipumc.org. You can also like us on Facebook in order to stay up to date with the latest events and activities taking place in our community. Please feel free to share this message and others on social media so that more people can hear about what God is doing here at One Fellowship Church. Thank you and God bless.